Matthew had an interesting way of taking the story of Jesus and helping to plant it within our hearts. This morning we turn to the third chapter, the first through the twelfth verses. And so let's share together in focusing on this important scripture of John and his baptized way of communicating and pointing toward Christ. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all the region around the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Every day, crowds gather to be baptized in the Jordan River. I don't know if you knew that. People come with their must-see list on their Holy Land expeditions. And so there are several places they've got to go. They've got to go to the Temple Mount. They've got to go to see the Via Dolorosa, that is the Way of Sorrows, the path that Jesus is said to have taken when he was moving toward Golgotha with his cross. The crowds come to look at the church of the resurrection, this structure that has been built around the most ancient place that is considered to be the tomb out of which Jesus was raised from the dead. And then also the tour buses will take the tourists over to the garden tomb, which is a more recent understanding of where Jesus might have been raised from the dead. Some of these sites are 
in question still to this day as to where they actually took place. But the tourists come by the droves to visit these holy sites. And one of the places they always want to go and the tour guides oblige them, they pull up by the busload to the edge of the Jordan River. Now, it is not the wilderness place that it once was. The path down to the river is paved with concrete and there are railings so that you do not slip and lose your footing and fall into the water before you had intended. But baptisms by the hundreds go on every day, every day in this very location where they are gathered. The church in its remembrance of John the baptizer has so taken this beautiful character of the wilderness and polished him as it does with all its saints across the years that it has somehow removed most all of the edge to who he was. I mean, I stand before you this morning and I don't do justice to John the baptizer. If he were here with us today, he would say, get aside, get aside. Let me get up here in front of these people. Let me tell them what it's about. He was this character that was outside of the edge of what we could have expected. That's why people went to him, because they didn't know what to expect. There was always this this sense of expectation of who he was. We do him a disservice to make him into a saint, really. I remember the words of Dorothy Day, this Catholic saint of years past. And she said, she said, she said, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed so easily. Once you make somebody a saint, you say, this is, this is exactly what's happening, really, with the precious life of Nelson Mandela, you know? saint that he was you know this person whom God used for very precious purposes in the world and those others that were a part of him in this reconciliation commission and the leading of of South Africa out of its bondage with with apartheid it it is an incredible story and he he worked with such grace in the midst of the tragedy of his incarceration for those 27 years but but we will polish him and remove all, all of the rough edges of who he was. So as to remove his humanity even. We do the same with John the baptizer. I have a feeling that he would have rubbed some of us, if not all of us, the wrong way. This firebrand of a preacher who didn't mince his words... Lived out his life knee-deep in the Jordan, welcoming people to come in, but come in at your own risk, he would say. Dressed like Elijah the prophet, eating what he could out of this desert wasteland, trying his best to speak into the world around him this sense of preparation for what he didn't even know for sure was about to occur. You remember, even after he was incarcerated himself, 
that he sent representatives to Jesus asking Jesus, if you can get this. You remember the story, don't you? He was asking Jesus, his representatives were asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Are we to expect another? This is incredible. I mean, this is John the baptizer that's asking the question. You and I polish the edges off our saints so that no longer do they seem connected with the world and connected with us. John did not come to bring anyone comfort. If you look carefully into this passage of Scripture that I've just read, you're not going to find the words of forgiveness and grace there upon his lips. He was challenging those that gathered. And he is still challenging us to this day. In this world that is filled with such spiritual disorientation. Come on, you know this, don't you? I mean, just think about the world in which we're living. Isn't there just this this spiritual disorientation to what Christ is about and what God's purposes are? Don't you see it wherever you look? You can't turn on the TV. You can't go down the street. You can't listen to the radio without getting a sense of this spiritual disorientation. Even in this season of Advent, this preparation for Christmas that's going on all around us, how do you feel when you are making your way through through a store? Do you sense any disease about how we've lost the focus? I, I was watching one particular show on TV this past week. It was You may have caught some of it too. It was the lighting of the, the tree in Rockefeller Plaza. And I just love these kind of shows. I really do. I just, I, I really fall for it. But I was, I was sitting there, especially after Mariah had gotten through with that first number. And I looked at Sue and I said, do you think Jesus is smiling on this right now? <laughs> this is just over the top. Does this have, does this, is this what Christmas is about? Is this, is this what preparation for Christmas is about? We become so disoriented. John was, was this man of truth. He sought to be. He sought to be this man of truth. And he called, he spoke words of truth, but he was calling people to live within a truth that was even greater than he himself could live into completely. Jesus said of men here on earth, there is no greater than John the Baptist. He was ushering in a new kingdom, though, because those on the low side of kingdom peopleness were going to be greater even than John this baptizer fellow. John was seeking to be a man of truth and change and repentance and fruit. This was not a popular message. Do you know what became of John, don't you? You remember that his message was so unpopular, at least within Herod's family, 
that he was beheaded and almost as if to joke with the idea of it all, his head was presented on a platter at a party for everybody to look on. You think this guy didn't rub folk the wrong way? His audience, for the most part, these commoners that came out his way. But everyone in town and throughout the country was paying attention to what he was saying. And especially the religious elite. Now, I, I fret at getting into this part of it because I put myself into at least the role today that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had in Jesus' day. You don't have to worry about that. It's only preachers. Jonathan and me have to worry about that. It's a dangerous place to be. Because when the Pharisees and the Sadducees showed up, I can't believe that they were moving closer to John in order that they might truly be dipped in the water of the repentance that he was talking about. He saw through who they were. And the words, he diced them up. Did you pick up on it? He said, you brood of vipers. You bunch of snakes. What brings you into the midst of this holy place? For here, the people are gathered who are wishing to have their lives changed. And there is no change in you. You want to be a part of the world of God? Then your calling is to bear fruit that is worthy of the repentance that is a part of your changed life. It's an incredible affront to who they were because they began mumbling as he spoke this. And they began saying, listen, who does he think that he is? I mean, our ancestors run all the way back to Abraham. Who is this guy telling us what we are doing wrong? And yet that's where it starts. You see, this is, this is the work of Advent. You want to know how to get Christmas right? Take the focus off of yourself in one way, but put it on yourself in another. Take on the idea that we come before God confessionally to change us and our world from the way that it is now. Words are often confusing. And this one is no exception. It seems pretty simple. You may see this tacked up on telephone poles or on signs, especially if you travel through the North Georgia mountains. You've seen these, haven't you? Repent, uh, in the Greek, metanoia. The meaning is simply a change of mind. Um, probably it would be closer if John were here change your ways, change your ways, not only in the way that you think, but in the things that you do. 
Most people think when they see this word, I need to confess. I need to be a, a person of sorrow considering the way that I've lived. I need to enter into a time of penance. And all of that is true. I don't want to keep you from doing that. But if you get a sense that the work of repentance is something that you can in any way confine to your past, you've just messed it all up. Because this is intended to be daily work. In the Methodist tradition, we baptize folk just one time. Do you know that? Some of you come into the Methodist church to bless us with other traditions from which you were birthed. But in the Methodist tradition, we believe that you are baptized but one time. And the reason is because we believe God doesn't make mistakes. We will make mistakes, but God never makes mistakes. So there is no reason for ever you to be baptized. You may say to yourself, well, I've made a mistake. In fact, I've just thrown my life away. I've got to be baptized again in order to make things right. Oh, no. Oh, no. Did God make a mistake? You made a mistake, but God hasn't forgotten the fact that you were baptized. But John, I mean, like it says in the Bible, John was a Baptist. (laughs) Now, Jesus was a Methodist. (laughs) But John the Baptist, John the Baptist, I have no doubt that he was baptizing folk as often as they would come down to the water. He would put them in, and he would say, oh, yeah, I want you to remember this. This is what it's all about. You are to be this repentant people every day, giving yourself to the change that God is calling forth in you. It's not easy. I mean, people try at this all the time. I hear people come and, and say to me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to change this time. I can do it. I'm going to dedicate my life to the change that I know needs to happen. And I want to say, give it up. <laughs> you know, just stop trying. Stop trying because you're undoing what only God can do. Only God can do this really in us. Repentance. It's not something that we can do ourselves. I was traveling down the road. I have this strange uh, compassion for animals that are crossing the road. Do you? Do you break for squirrels? I do. I confess. Sue and I, walking in the mornings, we walk past hundreds of these worms that come out of people's lawns and get out on the road. You may not know that they're there. I pick up worms and toss them back into your lawns. <laughs> it's awful. It's, it's a plague on my life. I, uh, I was driving down the road, and I came upon this turtle who was in a terrible fix. Somehow, out on this country road, this turtle was laying there in the middle of the road upside down upside down what I figure happened was that some car had come by and clipped the edge of that turtle maybe and not done it any injury but it had just sent this turtle on its back and there it was when I got to it well I 
went past it, but I pulled over. And I walked back to this turtle. And he was in quite a predicament. He was reaching his legs out, you know, just as far as he could to try to flip himself over to no avail. I have no doubt that he would have perished in his situation. And so I picked the turtle up, quite a hefty turtle. I picked him up, and I thought, I'm going to help this guy out. I am going to not only set him on his feet, but I'm going to set him off the road. He doesn't need to be here because he's going to get smacked soon. And so I go over, and I set the turtle down on the side of the road. I'm getting back into my car. You know what I see in the rearview mirror, don't you? You know. This turtle coming back out across the road. I go over and I talk to this turtle again. And I say, you don't understand the situation here. And I take the turtle, put him back off on the side of the road. And I stand there this time and watch And sure enough, the turtle comes walking back out on the road again. And so I get smart. I know this turtle's not going to change. Even though he's been saved, I know he ain't going to change. Did y'all hear me on that? Even though he's been saved, even though he's been saved, I know he ain't going to change. And so I take him. I said, okay, if you're determined you're going to head in this direction, let me help you. I'll put you on the other side of the road. And like, like he had this GPS, he just keeps going, you know. And I thought, well, maybe he'll catch it one day. And realize that real change, real change only occurs. Only occurs when you head in the other direction from all that stuff. Where is it that you are today with life? You know, we don't, some of this we can process on our own. Some of it we never get to fully. But where are you? Can you get to at least the edge of that? Are you at a place where you can truthfully say, God, help me, I can't do this on my own. Because I tell you, until you get to that point... It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You, you, I don't know if any of you know how Alcoholics Anonymous works, but it is such a beautiful organization. Such a beautiful organization. You know where it starts, don't you? It starts with this, this belief that you cannot do it on your own. And then it surrounds you with people who will agree with you that you can't do it on your own. But they are so committed to loving you and supporting you that then you realize God can do something here that I didn't think was possible. I bought a book at an old junk store up in Macon. It was the AA book. And you know what? I still have that thing in my office. On the inside of the front cover and on the inside of the back cover, 
it is covered with the names of people who had written down their telephone numbers, their addresses, and they had written notes to the person who originally owned the book saying, call me if you ever, ever need help. If you're on the edge, call me at any time of the day or night, and I'll be with you through the midst of that darkness. You and I can't do it on our own. There is no way. But God makes a way through the holiness of his offer to change everything. John's most important role was to point, if you can see this in this icon, to point toward Christ. Do you see that finger pointed toward the cross? Now this is a much polished version of John, isn't it? Do you know what he would say? He's still saying it today. We read it today in the scripture. (laughs) He would say, listen, come to me, I'll baptize you with water. I will baptize you with water. But there is one who comes after me and who is and who is to come who will baptize you with fire. And he would shout and he would say, I'm saying with fire, friends. And Jesus would say, redemptive fire. He would say, I'm talking about the judgment fire. And Jesus would say, the redemptive fire. Have you been baptized with that kind of fire? Now, we come to the end of this worship service. And we have an opportunity to say, God... Here I am. I have gotten as far as I can get with what I can do. I want to give my life to you for you to rewrite the story. If you've come today and you've felt the touch of the fire, I want to give you an opportunity to kneel, especially here. You have felt this touch. I want you to know that this altar is open to you. All of life is an offering. And so at the same time, what we will be doing is sharing together, actually in an offering during this next song. I'll ask the praise band to get back into their places. They're there. And so we will pass the basket for you to 